WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. This past week, Charlotte's big transit plans stalled. City Council trying to make adjustments to their 13.5 billion dollar plan to try and win over Republican lawmakers in Raleigh. Keep in mind, the General Assembly could ultimately sign off on a sales tax referendum that could fund everything from new train lines to bike lanes and just about everything in between. But a new floated plan from the Charlotte City Manager isn't winning everybody over on council. So this morning, we speak to two Republican council members, the only two, who believe that their work can really win over some of the folks in Raleigh. First up, District 7 Councilman Ed Driggs, and most importantly for this conversation, he's the chair of the Transportation Planning Committee there at City Council. Councilman, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Good morning. All right, so after this past week, in your view, where does the city's transit plan stand? Are, are we back at the drawing board? Where do we stand? I don't think we're drafted back at the drawing board, but I think we have work to do to modify the plan in order to bring in the partners we need regionally and also to cooperate with the General Assembly on the referendum uh, authorization that we need. So we still have work to do. We haven't discarded what was done so far. And where do you see the real crux of where that work needs to happen in the next few weeks and months? Um, if, if, if we're going to get this thing in front of voters anytime soon, where do you think is the source of, of where that focus should be? Well, I think the speaker's comments about rail indicate where we might need to go as far as working with the legislature is concerned. But also, we've had a lot of conversations with regional partners about what their local needs are. And we're trying to figure out how that works into the plan that we've departed from, which is our mobility plan. Do you think um, it, the idea was floated this past week, the idea of, of front loading the plan, focusing on, on roads, given what Speaker Moore set up at the General Assembly? Um, do you feel like that that plan has some some merit to it? I, I wouldn't have said front loading myself, but I think uh, we just generally need to look at how we balance our objectives here. So we have a larger plan, longer term, which includes these rail projects, uh, roads, bicycle paths, and so on. Uh, it's a question of sort of sequence. And I think the idea of having some low hanging fruit that we could access in terms of investing in buses, for example, and creating some of these sidewalks and bicycle paths uh, does make some sense. But that will become clearer when we talk to our partners in the region and come up with a genuine regional plan. Speaking of, of a regional plan, because because I mean, you're on here talking about this. I remember Julie Eisel coming on talking about that last year, you know, when she was on council. And it doesn't seem like it's really happened. Why is that? Why have we not had a more regional approach up into this panel? Or, or maybe we have, but it doesn't seem like we have the fruits to show for it, that we're, we're still basically in the same position we were a, a couple of years ago. I've cautioned people that this does take a long time. We're working with the Connect Beyond plan as a basis. Uh, I think we have made progress. We've talked to potential partners. It's just, it's slow, right? And you have to go through several iterations where you say, here's the big idea. Now, how does that actually play out? What does that mean in the various localities that would have to participate in it? So uh, I, I thought it was optimistic to imagine that we could have a referendum ready to offer the public this year. Uh, we're going to have to make a very strong case and we're going to have to have a well-developed plan in order to ask people to commit the resources. Uh, to that point, then I want to get back to the regional aspect. Do, do you think there's a chance we could have this on the November ballot? I mean, that means basically having a plan, being able to move forward and everything by this summer. Do you see that as an option or is that just not a likelihood? 
Personally, I'm skeptical about that because, as I just said, I think we really need to have a well-developed plan. We need to have commitments from our partners. Uh, the thing needs to mature a bit, in my mind. Um, so, uh, and I wouldn't want to take a chance on the outcome of a referendum without having a high level of confidence that we had done all of the groundwork. You remember a couple of referendums failed in Austin, Texas, and we had a few fail uh, here in North Carolina. So I'm being cautious about the timing. Yeah, don't want to do all that work only to have voters say, hey, we don't want this. Um, back to the regional approach that, that, that I promised to get back to. Do you feel like there needs to be a, a, a sort of overseeing trend, a, a new governing board when it comes to this plan that, that involves more of the regional stakeholders? You look at uh, my comments in committee meetings go back a couple of years. Uh, I've said we have to have an authority. So we're going to have to have some sort of formal framework uh, for cooperation among the participating communities, uh, the funding, the issuance of debt. Uh, this can't be a sort of a casual arrangement. It's not going to get done. So, yeah, absolutely. We have to have some sort of umbrella organization. I don't know exactly what we'll call it. More than, say, CATS. CATS can't do this on its own. No, because CATS doesn't reach as far as the regional plan that we intend to develop. And the umbrella organization would not be a Charlotte organization. Uh, it would be more like a CARTPO or something like that. So it would be a partnership of communities with a governance structure, with a, a finance plan. Um, and that's that's where the work is, too. The terms of that partnership have got to be developed further. Where are the areas of agreement? Do you feel like the, the agreement still is that this will be a, a one-cent sales tax increase that will have to go through the General Assembly? Or it's been floated the idea of, of not doing that, but instead doing a property tax? Do you feel like that's off the table? Most people are in agreement with the one cent sales tax at this point, or that's not even a point of agreement? Uh, I think the property tax is off the table. The amount of property tax you would have to raise in order to fund a pro program of this magnitude is really just uh, unthinkable. And when the property tax was first mentioned, the reaction from a number of quarters was pretty negative. So I think our focus will need to be on the sales tax there are some other revenue sources or funding sources that we might be able to identify that we would incorporate as possible, but the backbone is probably going to be a sales tax. How optimistic are you that, that we're going to have this transformational transportation network um, at least started in the next few years? Are, are you optimistic? Uh, I think that we will continue to pursue the goal of the, the large ambitious plan. The question in my mind is whether we do it in steps or what the process is. So we're not going to abandon this effort. We can't abandon this effort. Our needs are too great. But do we start nearer term uh, working on our bus system, making investments there, making investments in roads, things that people can see sooner while doing the engineering and design work for the rail projects, which will take longer to complete? As you know, you are one of only two Republicans uh, on council uh, with limited. I'm keenly aware of that. Yeah. <laughs> You're keenly aware of that, I'm sure. Um, with limited power, where your power does come in is conversations like this that require the Republicans in the General Assembly. Uh, how acutely do you feel like you know what they're looking for? And how often are you talking to them? Do you feel like you've got a good idea of what it's going to take to win them over? I've had uh, conversations with them. I think they're in sort of a watch and wait mode right now. Uh, uh, needless to say, because of the history between Mecklenburg County and Raleigh, uh, or Charlotte and Raleigh in particular, um, 
they are uh, waiting, I guess, guardedly. It's like, okay, show me what you got and we'll talk about it. Um, and I don't have enough yet to try to pin anybody down or uh, elicit a, a very positive response. I mean, positive in the sense of uh, affirmative, you know, like, okay, this will work or that won't work. So that's part of the ongoing process. The important thing is that we, as we talk to the regional partners, we also need to stay in touch with the legislature and not just cook up a plan and then go into them and say, all right, I need a bill to run my referendum. It seems like to me, not to be critical, but it seems like to me everything you're describing is important, but why wasn't some of these things happening in the last two or three years? I mean, the Charlotte Moves, that whole plan was released, I think, in 2020. What's been happening behind the scenes that, that the taxpayers at home watching this have not been able to see? I think one of the reasons it happened the way it did is Charlotte had the kind of expertise, like the staff, to develop a plan like this through CATS and our resources. So uh, we did a lot of the work trying to design what a plan like that lo look like. And uh, it was, in my opinion, a mistake that we did not include our partners, even within the county, earlier. But uh, it's difficult if you're trying something as ambitious as this to get a whole bunch of people into a room in front of a blank whiteboard and say, okay, you know, what should we do? So our guys worked on it. Uh, we hired consultants and we were trying to lead. But I think uh, it had the effect of making some of our partners feel a bit left out. And what we're doing right now is trying to remedy that. So we're going out without kind of fixed preconceived notions, talking to our partners, finding out what their needs are. Um, and as I say, it's, it just takes time. I mean, you'll have a meeting and then weeks will go by and then maybe you'll talk again, or you're gonna talk to another county or another town. Um, it, it's a massive undertaking. Pat Driggs, Chair of the Transportation Planning and Development Committee, member of Charlotte City Council. Mr. Driggs, thanks for coming on, we appreciate it. Good to see you today, thanks, man. Right. Take care. Bye. More Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint this week. Charlotte City leaders heading back to the drawing board uh, on how to fund their multi-billion dollar transportation plan. The city manager is suggesting front-loading funding for roads, things like that, over things like new train lines, all to get support from the Republican-led uh, General Assembly. Joining us now, Republican on City Council, Tark Bakari. Tark, thanks for coming back to Flashpoint. It's been a while. It has. I'm glad you've made it through all the important folks now and uh, are ready to circle back to me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. All right. Um, in your view, uh, it, you are sort of a, in a unique position here. You're, you're a Republican in Charlotte, and city council has to win over Republicans in Raleigh at the General Assembly when it comes to this transit plan. Where do you see your role in, in making this a reality? Because I know you've said to me that, that you are supportive of a big, massive, transformational transit program here in Charlotte. It's just a matter of how we get there. Yeah, and I think that the key word, the only thing I'd correct in what you just said is transit versus transportation, which sure. includes transit as a portion of it, but m much, much more than just light rail. So, you know, I, I, for a long time, for years, even before the last five plus years that I've been on council, but just active in the community, I've, I, I've known we've needed a transformational investment. And I know that's so important to Charlotte's future, but I have found myself as the kind of opposition force locally of it just being all light rail. And, you know, critics will say, it's more than that, Tark. Look at the plan, read it. Well, the plan says a whole bunch of beautiful things uh, about roads and networks and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the funding. 
the funding funding is ninety percent or eighty percent for light rail, Silver Line, stuff like that, and then the all the roads and everything else is an afterthought. It doesn't matter what the plan says. So, but my view of my role right now is I've evolved to a point where I don't have to just be the opposition of what it was because people are starting to realize the old plan is dead. And now I'm working locally behind the scenes with staff, with experts, but then in Raleigh, particularly as well as with the mayor and the city manager, as they're having conversations in DC to say, okay, what would a new roads first plan that maybe has some components of rail in it to compromise look like? And could we get a six, eight, 10, $12 billion transformational investment so that we're actually um, preparing for the future of how people move in the city? The, the idea of that roads first sort of uh, plan has come up recently. Do, do you think that will be enough to satisfy the Tim Moores of the, of the General Assembly? Well, Speaker Moore, um, I, I speak with him regularly. Uh, he is a, an incredibly smart leader in the in in our state, and he understands. He he doesn't hate light rail. I think he what what he is saying to everyone around here is, we're on to the light rail first plan. Like, don't come to us for a referendum, let alone funding, if if it's the same old plan that you've just renamed another time. So, in my conversations with him. He also agrees and believes that Charlotte needs a transformational investment in transportation. He, he wants to make that happen, but he needs to be able to see that the, the, the way a vast majority of people move today and the congestion they feel is addressed while we're also marching towards the future of how people are going to move and, and how transportation is going to occur. Uh, Speaker Moore will be the first to remind you that, that he basically lives in a suburb west of Charlotte and is used to uh, Charlotte traffic and is, is not some far off land for him. Um, you also are focused on what can be done to include technology, um, which is sort of your wheelhouse anyway, and how that can be incorporated in, in the plan. Yeah, the, the, the key is this. And again, I'll start with what my, my critics might say. Tark, it, sa it says that in the plan. It, it is talked about that. You're not the first to invent this. That is true statement. But the problem is the plan, a lot of parts of it are the marketing rebrandings that have occurred to try to get other people on board. If it doesn't make its way into a, a tactical plan for execution and more importantly, a funding plan, it isn't real. It doesn't exist. So I've really been pushing, um, you know, as we're looking 20 years out and how people are going to move. Light rail is an amazing economic development tool. We've seen it in South End. But it isn't the tool, in my opinion, that is going to move mass amounts of people, help with congestion through growth as that occurs. So I believe in roads today and, and the pain we feel paired with the 5G infrastructure, uh, the, the Internet of Things, IoT, where we're connecting devices and street uh, um, uh, signals and cars and vehicles all together as we move towards an autonomous vehicle approach where we have smart corridors connected to these nodes or hubs. And then all of a sudden we don't sit around and wait, okay, are autonomous vehicles ubiquitous? What we say is we're gonna have and use the roads where people move today, but as that industry evolves, well, they might be start to become dedicated as we recruit autonomous vehicle companies to come here. So that's how people are gonna actually move uh, in the future more than fixed rail as we've seen it as an economic development tool. Uh, I've been talking to you specifically about transit for uh, as long as you've been coming on the show, which is basically as long as you've been a council member. Um, and 
honestly, if I'm just talking from a taxpayer standpoint, it's a bit frustrating the lack of, of, of action because uh, anybody could have predicted the situation we're currently in a year and a half ago. It, it was very obvious, even in the interviews I do on the show, that this is where we stood and we still stand there right now. What's going to have to happen to, to get that one cent sales tax uh, on the ballot, which is the, really the final step where voters will have the final say? We forget about that sometimes. What is going to have to happen to make that a reality? So I'm not still talking to you about this two years from now. Well, the, the, so much there. And, so, and uh, yeah, my, I'm annoyed internally just thinking about it. As you look back, the way I'm diagnosing why we're here, which is the same place we've always been, is there's just been the Charlotte way in a lot of cases is to market or brand our way to, to the destination we want to go rather than go back, analyze the situation and recraft the plan. So it's been the same old plan that has been dead on arrival. It's like, you know, the sixth sense. This is, Bruce Willis is the only one that doesn't know it's dead, right? Now we're realizing that the plan is dead and people are suddenly for the first time becoming aware, okay, let's, maybe we have to do something different and we can't brand our way out of it. So uh, how we figure this out is we actually keep going on the plan, not create 300 page document that talks about the amazing theories of, of roads, but we actually create a funding model and, a, and an execution plan on that we get on board with the General Assembly. We've already identified amazing opportunities at a federal level for um, for federal funding uh, that, that would actually cover this kind of stuff. And then we bring it to the voters in a referendum. And trust me, I am the last person on this planet who wants to even think about a, a, a tax increase on any front. But if it's for the future of our roads, the one thing we really need to do I'm I can if the plan is right, the General Assembly and the towns are on board, I, I can I see the, the the logic in saying, okay, the taxpayers, to your point, the voters have the final word on this. And then it will be their will that we execute, not one or two people and their individual opinions on if it's right or wrong. Tark Fakari, uh, council member. Tark, thanks as always for coming on Flashpoint. All right, more Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Thousands of our nation's heroes asking where's the money to support their families. It's part of a promise the military made when they signed up. But the federal government is failing to live up to its end of the bargain for too many of our veterans. Our team identified a backlog of 200,000 cases waiting for decisions about their monthly disability payments. One heartbroken veteran telling our Nate Morbido how nearly half a million dollars hangs in the balance just for him. I I'm happy. On the surface, Leroy Perry seems happy. But in those rare moments when he lets down his guard. I have days when I have meltdowns. And it's evident. They hard. His war wounds may never fully heal. Now stuff don't go away. It don't go away. Perry served four years in the Army during the first Gulf War. Come back to the States, it was not the same. He spent more than a decade back on U.S. soil fighting the VA for disability benefits, for everything from a knee injury to PTSD. I put my life on, on the line for you. 
He tried securing the monthly payments on his own, but when that proved unsuccessful, a pro bono lawyer stepped in to help. As a result, the father of five says he finally started collecting nearly $4,000 a month for him and his family moving forward, but no retroactive pay. So he filed an appeal. His case has barely budged. I don't think it's fair to me or the other veterans out there. Almost 60,000 other appeals are in front of him. If you think that's bad, imagine how it feels for those at the back of the line. There are another 140,000 cases behind him. A backlog of 200,000 undecided appeals in all. That's the stuff veterans shouldn't have to go through. It's hard to disagree that our veterans deserve much better treatment than this. More flashpoint after this. Before we leave you folks, come interact with us on social media. Let us know if there's something you want us to talk about here on Flashpoint. And as always, remember to listen and subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you get yours. We'll see you back here next weekend.